Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, this is no joke. This week, somebody came by the office and they found out that I would be preaching, and, and so they told me this story. Uh, this is this is true. I'm not. This is somebody from our church. I won't tell who it was. And they said, well, there was this senior pastor one time that asked the associate pastor at the last minute to preach for him. Well, the senior pastor had to go out of town, and when he comes back, he wants to find out how was the sermon. So he's asking the people, how was it? And they're saying, ah, you know, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And, so the senior pastor's like, well, what happened? He's asking people. They just, it was okay, it was okay. So he goes to the associate pastor and he says, you know, what would you preach on? What was the message? And he said, well, you asked me at the last minute, so I just used one of your sermons. So I promise you this week, I'm not going to use one of Adam's sermons. I don't know if that person was trying to tell me not to use one of Adam's old sermons. But I won't, I won't do that. Today we are going to look at four challenges for the new year from the life of Josiah. And I have to say, this week I had a little bit of, of a revelation. Um, we're we're going to deviate from our, our study in the book of Acts for the next few weeks because God is leading us into a special time as a church as, as we undertake this building campaign and a lot of changes are going to happen. So this week we're going to look at Josiah and then Adam's going to lead us in the next few weeks um, in, in several different messages to prepare us for that. But as I said, you know, this week I had a bit of a revelation in, in my life. My wife and I decided that we wanted to make Christmas kind of special for our girls, for, for Grace and, and for Emma. And so we decided we wanted to get them something very special. And so we went out and we got one of those wooden play sets and I don't know if any of you all have seen those. You can get them at Sam's. You can, you know, you can get them uh, through Home Depot. And so we went out and we bought one of those. And, and it came in these three big boxes, but they weren't too big. And I didn't think anything about it. We had bad weather. It was raining. We were busy with Christmas. So I just, I didn't get to it. Well, on Christmas, we decided to pull out a picture of the playset and show it to Grace and Emma. And so we pulled it out and they saw it and they were excited, but... I don't think they really understood what this playset was. And so I, being the father that I was, said, Hey, you know, we're up early. It's Christmas Day. I'm going to go out and put that thing together. <laughs> now, some of you are laughing because you have experienced the torture that is this device. For one week, I open up three boxes, and there is enough wood inside those boxes to build a small village in Southeast Asia. It took God one paragraph to explain to Moses how to build the ark, save humanity, and all of the animals, twosies, twosies. It took these people a book the size of War and Peace with directions and diagrams to describe to me how to build this thing. But I slaved, and I labored, and I persevered, and I didn't get up, and we built this thing. And my girls yesterday, for the first time as I finished it, were able to play. Five minutes later, as I went inside to prepare for my sermon, let's look at the next photo. My girls wanted to play with a box. <laughs> One week, struggle, sweat, 
toil. My girls are out there watching me do this, and I'm like, I'm not going to let them know that I don't know what I'm doing. It might fall. I took it apart and put it up four times. They want the box. And doesn't that happen with Christmas oftentimes? See, we, we go through the Christmas season and we get presents and we spend our time celebrating and anticipating, but at the end, there's a little bit of a letdown or a, it's over. And the shiny and the new kind of dissipates. And my wife, uh, before Christmas, sent me an article called Why Christmas Never Lives Up to the Build-Up by Tony Reiki of Desiring God. And here's what Tony says in that article. He says, Christmas anticipation was thick in the air. Christmas music dominated the airwaves. The smell of pumpkin spice permeated everything. Beautiful lights brightened the now, uh, everything, the night. Now Christmas is over. The gifts are all unwrapped and worn or played with or returned to the store. Trees and lights come down and get tossed out of, of the box or put up in the attic. And it happens every year at the end. There's a sense of letdown. He says, call me a Scrooge, but I find this sensation rather predictable. Perhaps it's because we will have overspent and underslept and overeaten. I mean, we have that sense. Let's think about that. Why does that happen? We anticipate. Some of you begin Christmas in October. You say, Halloween ain't got no place in my home. I'm putting that tree up. And so you got Christmas music going maybe since July. And we have this anticipation, this longing for the joy of Christmas. But then there's this moment when it's all over at the end. Or what's next? And it never feels this deep longing in our hearts. I can remember as a kid that I would be sitting there and my family would buy the presents and I would have them in front of me and I would begin opening them and tearing them into them. But there was a point where I realized they're coming to an end and you always did not want to open that last one because that's when it was over. And so we get like that with Christmas. Well, Reinke goes on to then share this excerpt from a sermon by Matt Chandler, an Advent sermon on Zephaniah 3. And in Zephaniah 3, what we see is this proclamation that God is going to save the nations for His glory, that He's going to draw them back into Himself. And so in this celebration, in this um, anticipation of Christmas, what Chandler tries to explain is that Christmas never fully satisfies us because we're living in this period of the already but not yet. Christ has come. We celebrate His first coming to save us, but we eagerly anticipate His return when everything will be made new, when everything will be brought to fruition, when everything will be fulfilled and we will be in His presence. And here's what Chandler says. He says, Our punishment, speaking of us who are followers of Jesus, has been removed. We are lawbreakers. We have rebelled against God, and it is Christ. All of our punishment has been removed. That's true right now. Your judgment day, Christian, has already occurred. Now you stand in front of God, and you will give an account. I don't know, let's say for illustration points only, when, you, when they open up the file of your life and pull out that file and slap it down, it will be dripping with the blood of Christ. When they open up the first page, it will say, holy, spotless, blameless, 
Not because of you, but because of Christ. Because in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Him. This is what God has done. This is why we look back upon the first coming of Christ and we sing and we shout and we rejoice with all of our hearts for the God of our salvation. Because there is no punishment for us. We will never again fear harm. What's weird is that in this season is a sense of anticipation. But the reason we're going to be disappointed is that all of this is the shadow of a greater reality. What's going on right now is meant to dial me into the anticipation for the day that being disappointed is impossible. So rich and deep is the love of God that at the consummation of all things, 10 billion years from now, will be just as fresh, just as beautiful, just as freeing as it has ever been. We sit in that. We rejoice in that while we look for the second coming, pleading for the second advent of Christ. That is why John ends his book of Revelation with, Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. So we buy our daughter a playset, and we know that she's going to enjoy it, but there's a reality that I'm faced with as a follower of Jesus that it'll never satisfy the deepest longing of that girl's heart. Only Christ does that. But I'll eagerly anticipate the day when he returns and redeems us his people. And so we are frustrated in in this Christmas season and we find ourselves in need of renewal and revival and refreshing. We've we've partied, we've had the celebration, we we experience the, the cold and the sickness and the lack of sunlight and we need the Lord to do something in our lives. Well, I think we see what happens when God brings revival in the life of Josiah. And we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 22. Now, you may not spend a lot of time in 2 Kings, but it's in the Old Testament. Towards the beginning, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. There's a lot that happens in that space. And so I want to catch us up to speed, kind of the redemptive historical perspective of what God is doing in these people before we look at the life of Josiah in 2 Kings 2. And let's start at the beginning. So God has created everything in the garden and everything is good. And his creation culminates in the creation of Adam and Eve who are chosen to reflect his perfection and to rule in this earth. But that is broken when they sin against God, when they follow the serpent. But God is not taken off his throne at that point. But what he reveals to us is he has a plan to redeem humanity through the seed of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And so humanity continues on and they spiral out of control. Eventually they are um, divided in their languages because of their rebellion. But God continues to be faithful and the story focuses in on a man named Abraham. And so in Abraham what we see is God promises that he will bless all the nations through his seed. And so as we see the people of Abraham grow, they become known as Israel. And eventually, these people of Israel end up as slaves in Egypt. So they're in Egypt, they're captive, but God is going to rescue him because he has promised that he will send a redeemer, that he will bless through the line of Abraham. 
And so God sends judgment upon uh, um, Egypt. He sends plagues. And on the last plague, it's culminated in what we call the Passover. God says that He will destroy all the firstborn of Egypt. However, there is a provision that all those men are to take according to their family one spotless and perfect lamb, slay it, take the blood and put it over their door. And as the death angel passes through, everyone who is under the perfect blood of the lamb, that spotless lamb, that sacrifice, will be saved. And so, God sends his judgment and the people of Israel are spared. And they, re- and they leave Egypt. And they make their way into the land that was promised to Abraham. And so they, we then see that he invites them into a special relationship with them through a special covenant on Mount Sinai that's summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so these people make this covenant to be a people for his glory, to become a kingdom of priests that is his representatives on earth. And he gives them this this tabernacle that his presence, just like it dwelt in Eden, will just like dwell in this tabernacle among them. But even before Moses comes down from the mountain with the blueprints, the people have rebelled and worshipped a false god. And his anger burns. But Moses pleads and intercedes and God spares the people because he's faithful to his covenant promise. He has made a promise. And so Israel is spared. Eventually, Joshua is the next ruler. The people make their way into the promised land under Joshua. The tribes are dispersed throughout the land, and they become this kind of kingdom of people. And they're ruled by these people called judges. But those judges are corrupt, and what we see in the book of Judges is this cycle of repetitive sin against God, denying and disobeying His covenant, receiving the judgment of God, and then them repenting and God showing mercy. And we see this continual cycle in the judges. But God is merciful, even though it says that the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And God spares them, and the people ask for a king. And they want to have someone to rule over them because maybe that will stop the cycle. And God gives them a king and they get Saul and he looks perfect on the outside. But on the inside, he is corrupt, he is deceptive, and he is prideful. And that ultimately leads to Saul's demise. And then God establishes a king, David, whom he makes a promise that from his line will come one who will make, uh, who will, will come to earth and establish an eternal kingdom and who will be intimately connected to the covenant promise made to Abraham to bless all nations. But David's not perfect either. And David sins against God, and we see his own sons then rebelling against him and fighting one another. But ultimately, David's son Solomon becomes the king, and Solomon builds the great temple. But even though the temple is built to represent God's presence among the people, what happens is they rebel against him. And Solomon allows idol worship to come into the people, amongst the people of Israel, and the people follow these false gods. Well, when Solomon dies, his sons then inherit, and they end up splitting the kingdom. So you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. 
Of all the people in the northern kingdom, all of the kings, it says there's not one of the 20 who is right with the Lord or who is a good king. And of the southern kingdom, what we have is these glimmers of hope and the eight of those kings follow the Lord and one of those is Josiah. So we have a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom rebelled against God and they have now fallen and been dispersed. The southern kingdom has rulers and one of those is Josiah and that leads us to 2 Kings chapter 22. So 2 Kings chapter 22 verse 1, here's what we read. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His, mother name, his mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah and both, of Boskath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn to the side to the right or to the left." So Josiah is born into this family that has rebelled against God. And so the first truth that we are going to see is we can't let our past or the culture define us. Truth number one, do not let the, your past or the culture define you. Josiah's grandfather was Manasseh, and he was an absolutely terrible king. And he brought more trouble on the people of the southern kingdom than anyone else. It says that he came to power when he was 12 and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it says Manasseh in 2 Kings 21 led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people. Manasseh promoted worship of Melech and even sacrificed his own sons. He was horrible, and it says that he, led, he shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides the sins that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, leads the people to disobey and break the perfect covenant that God has established, to follow false gods. And his son is no better. His son is Amon. And Amon only rules for two years, but he's so bad, his servants conspire against him and kill him. And therefore, Josiah comes to the throne. So Josiah is raised in a terrible environment, but his family history of depravity and the culture around him does not define who Josiah is. That's why we read that in verse 2, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Sometimes what we want to do is blame the culture Blame our upbringing for the situation and the sin and the hurt that we find ourselves in. But that wasn't Josiah. His identity was in the Lord and he followed the Lord. And that's what we need to do as a people. And then we see in, uh, in a parallel account in Second Chronicles, here's what it says about Josiah. In the eighth year of his reign, so Josiah came to power when he was eight years old, the eighth year of his reign, he's 16 years old, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. 
And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, and the carved and metal images. Sixteen years old, and he seeks the Lord. And that word seek in the Hebrew means to seek with passion and intensity. Church, are we, are we guilty of not calling our young people to serve the Lord? Of saying, oh, at 16, they're to be carefree and do what they want. That's just what it is. That is the culture speaking. That is not the Lord. We should gather around our students here. We should gather around Jason and his ministry. And we should raise up a generation of young men and young women who will abandon everything to serve the Lord. Who will live according to his word. Who will repent and serve him no matter what the flow of the culture is. We have about 30 students who tomorrow will head to Passion in Atlanta, Georgia. Passion has one declaration. It's the Isaiah 26, 8 declaration. Yes, walking in the way of your truth, for your name and your renown are the desires of our hearts. Students, is that your desire? The Lord and the Lord alone. Not, not popularity, not what the culture says, not what the TV tells you you are to do, but it's the Lord and the Lord alone. Don't let someone tell you because you're young, you can't follow the Lord and you can't make a difference. Josiah is 16. And he leads a nation to repent and destroy the idols that they have abandoned the God of their fathers for. Church, do we know God and want to walk in His ways and not turn aside as Josiah did from the right or to the right or to the left, but to stay the course that He has set before us? Or are we allowing maybe our past to dictate us, but we need to claim the promise that in Christ all things can be and will be made new. As followers of Jesus, we have a hope. But this revival, this renewal starts with us. Mark Batterson in his work called The Circle Maker speaks about a, name named, a man named Gypsy Smith. Rodney Gypsy Smith was an evangelist in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and was powerfully used by God. He preached to millions and crisscrossed the Atlantic Ocean 45 times. He never received a formal education, but yet he, was in, uh, yet he lectured at Harvard. He grew up in a gypsy camp outside of London, yet he was invited to the White House by two different presidents. Everywhere Gypsy Smith went, the Lord seemed to bring revival. So one day, a delegation of people go to him, and they say, We are in desperate need of revival in our area. It is so dry and dead. What can we do to see revival? Gypsy Smith's response is simple and profound. He says, Go home. Lock yourself in your room. Kneel down in the middle of the floor and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. We've got to stop being a people who complain about the culture and listen to talking heads on the TV and be a people who draw a circle around us and say, Lord, start revival here. Let me serve you. So challenge number one. Don't let your past or the culture define you. Challenge number two. 
discover the power and beauty of the word. Josiah was 26. It was 26 in the 18th year of his reign when he began to repair the temple. So he sends Shaphan, his secretary, to Hilkiah, the high priest, to count the money that they had collected for the rebuilding of the temple. And in the process of bringing out the money, they find the law of the Lord in the temple, and they're surprised. They found the Word of God in the house of God, and they were surprised. May that never be said of Rosemont Baptist Church. May we be a people who are saturated with the Word of God. May we be a people, as Mark Dever says, who read the Word, preach the Word, pray the Word, sing the Word, and see the Word lived out. And so when they bring this book of the law to Josiah, here's what we see that he does in 2 Kings 22, verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes and he commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people in all of Judea, and Judea concerning the words of the book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. He hears the word of God and he longs to then understand the word of God. Is that us? That is why we have small groups at this church. That is why we get into communities and we believe that we should devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching because we should be a people who absolutely long for the word, who are fed and repentant before the word. We're not living off of Adam's sermons, but we're in the word celebrating the gift that God has spoken. We understand that 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We understand Hebrews 4.12 where it says, For the word of the Lord is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the divisions of the soul and the spirit. We aren't taking selfies of our, our Bibles with coffee on a mountaintop overlooking a stream, but we are a people who are torn open before the Lord because of His word and His truth. We're broken before this holy God. We're reverent before His word and we act upon His word. And we have truly repentant hearts. I don't know if you've seen the, the show Cops, but you'll watch Cops and what happens, the guy gets caught and all of a sudden there's always that one guy that just starts bawling. I didn't mean to, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do it. What happens the one second the cop turns around? Gone. Guy takes off running. He wasn't sorry, he's just sorry. I mean, he wasn't repentant. He was just sorry he got caught. Sometimes do we come and hear the word of God and we're just sorry, but we're not really repentant. We're not covered in sackcloth and ashes and ripping our clothes because this is a holy God that we have defiled and defamed and disobeyed. So don't let your past define, the past or the culture define you. Discover the power and beauty of the word. And number three, don't be a spectator. Josiah wasn't just a spectator, but he acted. He goes to Huldah the prophetess, 
And she reveals to him that God's judgment will be poured out, but that he will be saved because he has been humble before the Lord and has repented. And so Josiah could have just gone home at that point and sat on his chair and eaten a sandwich and said, hey, it's good with me, but all you people, it's going to be in, you're in trouble. Good luck. He doesn't do that. It says that he calls the elders and he shares with them the word of God and he declares it before them. One Old Testament scholar said this, instead of resting content with the fact that he was promised deliverance or from approaching judgment, Josiah did everything that was in his power to lead the whole nation to true conversion. And he goes about and he seeks to destroy the idols in that land. And we may read the destruction of idols and think that's not us. We go to South Asia and Southeast Asia and we see these figurines that people make and that they worship and we say, with well, that's not us. But can I just ask you, maybe we've just become sophisticated in our idolatry. If we laid our lives and everything on the table, what would we be called to surrender because it's an idol? In Indonesia, when, when, when we had people, uh, communities come to faith, we would have this um, gathering of them where they were to bring all of the uh, talismans that they had gotten from the witch doctor to try to manipulate the spirits. We told them to bring that, and then we burnt that as a community of faith because they were no longer under this power of darkness, but they were in Christ and knew. If we in this room circled around and we brought the things, what would end up in the middle of that fire? Would success at work? Would cell phones and computers? Would pornography? What would end up in that fire? What would the Lord call us to surrender because it is an idol in our lives? So that He may be seated on the throne that He deserves in our lives in the temple that he has established. So what is he calling us to surrender? So we see we don't allow the past and our culture to define us. We discover the beauty and the power of the word. We are not just spectators. And number four, and finally, we center our lives on the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Kings 23, 21, here's what it says. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord. The Passover had been neglected for a hundred years. Josiah then calls the people to gather together in remembrance of this beautiful people, I mean, of this beautiful celebration of God's mercy and His salvation through the shed blood of the Lamb. And remember, we live on this side of that redemption. For Christ has come. Christ, who John looked at and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, who on his cross took our sin and our shame, nailed it to his cross, and what did he declare? It is finished. 
because of his perfect sacrifice. If we lived our life centered on that reality, how would it change every single day of our lives? I want you to watch this one very short video. It's about a minute. And it's just an encouragement and an explanation of Jesus in the Passover. And I want you to ask yourself, am I centering my life in the gospel? I want you to ask yourself, have I put my faith in that truth of the gospel? And allow God to reveal the idols in your life that you have allowed to take um, precedence over Him. Think about the Word of God and are you hungering? Are you longing for the Word of God? And are you listening and submitting yourself before His Word, which is perfect? Or are you allowing the culture and your past to dictate you? Allow the Lord to speak. And then as, as the musicians play... If you need to come to this altar and pray, we'll be here to pray with you. If you need to come and surrender something, surrender it. If you need to do it in your seat, do that. If you've never put your hope in the gospel, let today be the day of salvation. Come to Christ and experience the joy of His salvation. Let's watch this and allow the Lord to speak. Okay, we're don't. Listen to these words. In Zephaniah 3, here is what the prophet says, the prophet that was there during the reign of Josiah. He says, Sing aloud, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your hearts, O daughters of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And you shall never fear evil. Hear the, the words of Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Hear that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on Him in whom they have never believed? And how will they believe in Him in whom they have never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? Every one of us in this room falls somewhere within that truth. We've either yet to trust and experience the salvation of the Lord, or we have experienced it and we're called to go proclaim it in this world. So let us consider the unblemished and perfect promises of God this morning. And so if you need to come and pray, come and pray. If you need to repent, repent. Let this be a time between you and the Lord for Him to move in a special way. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.